seat. Why don't you uh, greet a couple people around you, welcome them this morning. We're so glad you're here. Oh, yeah. 
have gathered today with um, kind of different weeks. I know for, for us, we were able to see the seventh grade boys basketball team win their sectional, so that was kind of a really high point. And then yesterday, the eighth grade team just came this close, and you know, it's that uh, the old analogy of, um, you know, when you get defeated, you know, it just feels bad, and it's, it's the, you know, the glory of sports when you get to experience both sides. Um, but a lot of times in our spiritual lives, that's the same thing. You know, maybe you have come here this morning on this really spiritual high, this great high, and you're excited. Uh, maybe you've just, you know, it's, you've felt the agony of defeat uh, this week. So um, thankfully, we're all able to gather. And just with both, with both instances in our life, maybe, you just, uh, maybe it was just a normal week. Uh, nothing real great, nothing real exciting. But it's awesome to know we can gather together. Uh, we can sing, we can lift our voices, we can listen to God's word um, in all of the different places where we've been all week and just come and gather as, as a community of believers. So um, it's awesome to know that grace finds us in every way possible, in every way, shape, and form. So. Stand newborn
We're going to have our ushers come forward. We're going to take this morning's offering this time. And let me pray for this. God, we just, uh, we come before you, Lord. We come to worship you, to gather our hearts uh, so that you um, would not be pleased with us, Lord, but that we would be pleased with you and understanding that you have brought us together, that you have, um, you have worked in our lives, Lord. You've brought us to this place for a reason. And God, we just give you the glory with everything. We just pray for this offering that you would multiply it uh, to get your work done, Lord. And we just thank you uh, for the privilege we have to give in your name.
seated. Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good morning. And I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity that to um, to be able to be down there and worshiping with you guys and, and standing next to my wife. So thank you, Eric and Nikki and and Haley and and Justice for uh, giving me that opportunity this morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Eric. I am the uh, student and worship pastor here at Cross Point. And, um, and we're, we're really glad that you're here, um, whether this is your first time or your 27th time or you've been here since the day one. Um, if you haven't been here before or maybe you've been here a couple times and you haven't done this yet, we would love for you to, um, before you leave, step back at the Guest Connection Center there. And there's a, there's a green card there, and it's, I think it's green. Um, it's the Guest Connection card, and we'd love for you to fill that out. Um, just to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe a way that we can pray for you, um, maybe uh, how you might want to get involved with what's happening here at Crosspoint, or maybe you just want to know uh, a little bit more about what's happening here at Crosspoint. There's all kinds of things that you can check for that, and uh, we would love to um, just follow up with you later on this week and let you know that, uh, that we're glad that you came. So uh, thanks for coming with us. And also, if you don't have a Bible, um, we have Bibles back there that you can get uh, for free, our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home and use that in your life as well. Um, If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. And while you're doing that, I want to share some fun Crosspoint family news. Congratulations to Ben and Brittany Hodel on the birth of their second daughter, Sylvie Mae Hodel. I love that name. It's adorable. Uh, Born at 4.23 p.m. on Wednesday, January 27th. Uh, Sylvie weighed in at 8.9 pounds. And 20 inches long. Everybody's doing well. And they've actually been overwhelmed already by uh, the amount of food that people have brought for them for meals. And so there's not even a need right now for us to, to create any kind of online sign-up for that. So, so let me just say thank you to you. I love, I love it when I see um, friends and family and, and um, uh, the body of Christ uh, just taking that initiative and not waiting for some prompt, but to, to see somebody who has needs and to, to fill those, uh, something just as simple as bringing them a meal. So thank you for, for supporting them, for caring for them as the body of Christ would. Uh, today we're in, a, we're in week eight of a series called God Delivers. It's part of a three-year plan that will take us chronologically through the Bible together. Uh, and, and for the first several weeks of this series, we've been reading a, about uh, the story of Moses and the Israelites and their departure or their exodus from Egypt, hence the name of the book that we're in. The first 18 chapters of Exodus cover this departure in detail, and then about seven weeks after they leave Egypt, the Israelites come to the base of Mount Sinai here in uh, chapter 19. And at Mount Sinai, this will be the backdrop then for the rest of the book of Exodus. It's here at this mountain that God tells the Israelites that he, uh, why he brought them out of Egypt to enter into a covenant relationship with them. them. He will be their God, and they will be his people and serve as his representatives to the nations. And here at the base of this mountain, God is preparing his people 
for his presence to come down and be uh, among them, to dwell with them. The Ten Commandments serve as the foundational guidelines of this covenant and that God is making with the people of Israel. And each commandment reveals an aspect of God's love for his people. Remember, he called them first in love and then gave them these commandments. And we're going to see today how these reveal uh, God's love in different ways. Last week, we looked at the first four commandments. And the first commandment reveals that God's love is a holy love. It's set apart. It's, it's like no other. And it calls the people to submit themselves to him alone and to submit in love to him alone. The second commandment reveals that God's love is a jealous love. Uh, and it calls the people to give their worship to God alone. The third commandment reveals that God's love is a righteous love. And it calls the people to represent him rightly to the nations. That's one of the reasons that he called them out um, and to give him the honor that he's due. And the fourth commandment reveals that God's love is a restful love, and it calls the people to trust in God's providence and sufficiency. This morning, we're going to tackle these last six commandments. Uh, and, and oftentimes, the Ten Commandments will get broken up into two separate categories, the first four being about our relationship with God, and then the last six being about our relationship with people. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus even summarizes them into the two greatest commandments, the first and greatest being to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and then the second greatest being to love your neighbor as yourself. And while, we're, while today we're going to be looking at um, what it looks like to love your neighbor, my prayer is that we go through, as, as we go through these last six commandments, that we'll see that they're just as much about loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind as the first four commandments are. Everything that we do uh, in action and, and love toward our neighbors is a result of our action and love toward God. God gives the, uh, a precursor to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 2, when he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, no other God can claim this. No other God can claim the redemption of his people except for Yahweh. That's why that word Lord is, is in all four capital letters. That's the name of God. No other God can claim the redemption of his people except for Yahweh himself. And therefore, no other God is worthy to be loved and worshipped as God except for Yahweh himself. And this is true for the Israelites, and this is true for those of us who have been redeemed by God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. This is why the commandment to love the Lord your God is the greatest commandment. God is the God of our relationships, and our relationships with others are always a reflection of our relationship with God. In his large catechism, Martin Luther said this. He said, to have a God, small g, is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. To have a God, large G, as you can well imagine, does not mean to grasp him with your fingers or put him in a purse or to shut him up in a box. Rather, you lay hold of God when your heart grasps him and clings to him. To cling to him with your heart is nothing else than to entrust yourself to him completely. All of our affection, all of our adoration, all of our allegiance belongs to the Lord our God and him alone. And everything we do is to be a reflection of our commitment to cling to him with our whole heart and to entrust ourselves 
to him completely. Today we're going to see that these last six commandments show us and tell us how to love others in a way that shows honor to God as the one and only God who has loved us and redeemed us. And so let's jump in this morning. The fifth commandment helps us to see that we honor God by honoring our parents. Uh, And let's take a look at that. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This commandment reveals that God's love is a fatherly love. And it's calling his people to love and honor him as their heavenly father through the way that they love and honor their earthly parents. God has established the family as a foundation as the foundation for all of our human relationships, and he's given the highest form of earthly authority to mom and dad. Now, before you go and throw a a paper spitwad at your kid up here in the first row, parents, let me remind you and make sure that they're paying attention, because they are. They're all looking at me. I don't see any eyes closed. We're okay. Um, But but let me remind you that that, um, these commandments are designed to show God is our authority above everything and everyone else, including mom and dad. But if we don't honor our highest authority, students, our highest earthly authority, right, uh, then, then how can we honor the one who is the highest authority over all things? In the New Testament, Paul emphasizes that honor is shown through obedience. In Ephesians 6, 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In Colossians 3, 20, he says, Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so consistent obedience to your earthly parents reflects a faith in him through a heart that clings to his fatherly love and entrusts itself to his care. We honor God by honoring our parents. And the Hebrew word for honor here in verse 12 means to make weighty. In other, mean, in other words, it means to, to show an abundant amount of respect, to heap it on, so to speak. This, this truly is a commandment that, that carries a lot of weight in the eyes of God, so much so that Jesus himself set this example for us. When he came to earth in the flesh, he obeyed his earthly parents and submitted himself to their authority. When he was 12 and they were looking for him and they found him in the temple, Mary and Joseph, they went and they found him in the temple, um, Jesus reminded them of his commitment to God the Father. He said, uh, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? And yet they still wanted to leave and take him back to Nazareth with them, and so he obeyed, and he went with them. Even as he hung on the cross for his own mother's sins, he showed her a great amount of honor when he entrusted her care to one of his disciples. Dying on the cross, he showed his mother honor by putting her care into the hands of one of his disciples. Keep in mind that when this commandment was originally given, it was given uh, to both young children and adult children whose parents were part of God's chosen people. Remember, he was bringing a nation out, the nation of Israel. And those parents were also being called to commit themselves to this covenant relationship with God. Unfortunately, parents back then and parents today are still sinful at heart. And not all parents are committed to loving and honoring God. This is why it's important that when we read this commandment, we don't use it to measure our parents' worthiness to receive honor. 
But instead, we see the worthiness of our Heavenly Father, and we honor our parents whether they deserve it or not. Now, that doesn't mean that we obey our parents in everything without exception. If obedience to them would require disobedience to God, then we are allowed to disobey our parents. Don't be looking for those ways, okay? But listen, warranted disobedience does not warrant dishonor. Warranted disobedience never warrants dishonor. When we must go against our parents' commands because they go against God's commands, we must always do it in a way that still shows an abundant amount of respect to them as our God-given earthly authority. So students, do you show an abundant amount of, your, of respect to your parents? You don't have to answer, but I really want you to think about it. Okay? Adults, do you show an abundant amount of respect to your parents? The good news is that though we often fail at this commandment, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. And then he died to pay for our unfulfillment of it. And as followers of Christ, we have been given the Holy Spirit uh, to help us be imitators of Christ and fulfill this command in our lives as we cling to God with our whole hearts and entrust ourselves to his fatherly love. And so we honor God by honoring our parents. We also honor God by loving our neighbors, and that is reflected in the next four commandments. We're going to look at these, verses 13 through 16. (coughs) Excuse me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Clinging to God with our whole heart is reflected first in our home, and then it moves outward into our other relationships. Romans 13 9 and 10, Paul summarizes these commandments into one command. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. These next four commandments are identifying ways that we are prone to do wrong to our neighbor. And and instead, they're calling us to show love. Commandment number six is you shall not murder. This commandment reveals that God's love is a redeeming love. And it reminds us that he brings people out of death and slavery and gives them life and value. It calls his people to love and honor him as the giver of life. Murder disregards God's holiness Uh, as the life giver to all things. He created man in his image. He gave him the breath of life and he set man apart from everything else in, in creation and he made us his most prized possession. God gives us value when he gives us life and murder is an attempt on our part to devalue and destroy what God has given value to through his creative power and love. In Egypt, the Israelites were devalued by Pharaoh and the Egyptians and and were ruthlessly mistreated as slaves. Pharaoh murdered their children because he had no regard for God and no regard for the value of human life except for his own. He was worried that the Israelites would grow so numerous that they would outnumber the Egyptians and take over his kingdom. They would threaten his kingdom. He was more concerned with his own status as king than he was with the Israelites' status as human beings. And in order to protect his kingdom, 
He ordered the Egyptian people to murder all the baby Israelite boys by throwing them into the river to have them drown. Pharaoh had, to take it upon him, uh, had taken it upon himself to determine that those, what those babies were worth to him instead of what they were worth to God. Now, before we write Pharaoh off, yes, he was an evil man, but Moses is guilty of this too. Moses did the same thing when he murdered an Egyptian after he saw him beating one of his Hebrew slaves. Certainly what the Egyptian was doing wrong, but, uh, was wrong, but Moses decided to take justice into his own hands instead of allowing and, and submitting that to God to take care of. And he determined that this Egyptian's life was worth less than the Hebrew slave's life, worth less than his own life. And so Moses waited until he thought no one was looking And he murdered this Egyptian, and then he hid his body in the sand. Like Pharaoh, Moses took it upon himself to determine what the life of another human being was worth to him instead of what that human being was worth to God. And in both Pharaoh's case and Moses' case, each had hatred in his heart toward another human being. In Matthew 5, Jesus addresses this heart condition that leads to murder. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now chances are that none of us in here will be guilty of actual murder. But according to Jesus in Matthew 5, when we harbor hatred and bitterness in our hearts toward another human being, then we take it upon ourselves to determine what the life of that human being is worth to us instead of what he or she is worth to God, and we write off that person as worthless, just as if we'd killed them. We've murdered them in our hearts, Jesus says. God's love is a redeeming love. The New Bible Dictionary defines the word redemption as deliverance from some evil by the payment of a price. God's redemptive love is a value-giving love. It cost him something to redeem his people. He redeemed Israel from Egypt, and he made them his treasured possession, it says. Jesus showed us the fullest expression of God's love when he willingly laid down his own life in order to save us and redeem our murderous hearts. Even as he was lying on the cross, Jesus asked the Father to forgive the hate-filled ones who were murdering him. By telling his people not to murder in this sixth commandment, God is telling them to cling to him with a heart of love instead of clinging to others with a heart of hatred. He's calling them to see the value that he has given to human life and to show their love for him by upholding that value through their love for others. Do not murder. Do you have hatred in your heart towards someone else? Have they wronged you so greatly that you've convinced yourself that you, like Moses, are justified in your anger and and similar to the way that Pharaoh felt? He thought he was justified in that too. If so, then listen, you have broken this commandment and now you have become guilty of greatly wronging God. Today is the day to reconcile, to forgive, and to receive forgiveness, to seek forgiveness, and to trade that hatred for God-honoring love. The good news is that though we often fail at this commandment, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. 
And then he died to pay for our unfulfillment of it. And as followers of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us be imitators of Christ and fulfill this commandment in our lives and as we cling to God with our whole hearts and entrust ourselves to his redeeming love. Commandment number seven is you shall not commit adultery. This commandment reveals that God's love is a faithful, committed love, and it reminds us that he is the covenant keeper. It calls his people to love and honor him through their commitment to the covenant that he has established with them and to reflect that through their marriage covenants with one another. Adultery disregards God's faithfulness to us as the covenant keeper, and it makes us the unfaithful covenant breakers in our earthly marriages and as the bride of Christ. It severs the marriage bond through sexual immorality. God created the earthly marriage covenant to be reflective of the heavenly marriage covenant. And the marriage relationship is the foundation for the family relationship, and it serves to model to the world around us the love and faithfulness of God. I love the way that the Gospel Project Leader Guide puts it. It says, In a society where infidelity is often glorified, healthy and faithful marriages stand out. Devoted Christian marriages are also the key to rearing children in an atmosphere of security and discipleship. God designed the home to be made by parents who love Jesus and love each other in order to give children the stability they need. In the same way, Jesus revealed murder to be more than a physical act of disobedience and instead uh, an issue of the heart. He did the same for adultery. Matthew five twenty seven and 28. Jesus said, You have heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. According to Jesus' words, you don't have to be sexually involved with someone physically in order to commit adultery. If you crave that person sexually in your heart and they are not your spouse, you've already done the deed and you've broken this commandment. And unless you break yourself free from that craving by clinging yourself to God's faithful love and fleeing from the deception of adultery, then you will head down a path that leads only to destruction. In his book, Money, Sex, and Power, author Keith Drury describes this path to destruction by listing 15 steps uh, that lead to sexual immorality. And these steps are based on interviews with scores of churchgoers who ended up committing adultery. And I want to read these to you along with some of the quotes from the people interviewed. Step number one, sharing basic common interests, often spiritual things. He was so spiritually minded. I'd been looking for someone to share my spiritual struggles with. Number two, mentally comparing someone else with one's mate. She was so understanding and and would listen to me and my hurts. My wife was always so busy and rushed that we didn't have time to talk. (coughs) Excuse me. Number three, meeting emotional needs. My wife was busy with the kids and not at all involved in my work, and this girl admired me and treated me like I was really somebody. It felt so good. Number four, looking forward to being together. Every time I drove by her house, I would think of her and how we'd see each other that Sunday. Number five, tinges of dishonesty with one's mate. Whenever we got together as couples, I would act like I didn't care about him, and afterward I would even criticize him to my husband. I guess I was trying to hide my real feelings from my husband. 
Number six, flirting and teasing. He had those killer eyes. When he'd look at me in that special way, I would just melt. I was hopeless, fighting my urges. He had me. Number seven, talking about personal matters. I was having problems with my son, and she seemed to understand the whole situation so much better than anyone else I've talked with. I'd tell her about the most recent blow-up, and she would understand so well. We just became really deep friends, almost soulmates. That's what's so weird about all this. We never intended for it to go this far. Number eight, a minor yet arousing touch, squeeze, or hug. He would often pat me on the shoulder, you know, in appreciation for a good job I'd done, but I knew it meant more than that. Number nine, special notes or gifts. I would sometimes call him and leave a short message on his answering, answering machine. He would leave little notes in my Bible. Number 10, inventing excuses to call or meet. She started arranging her schedule so that her husband dropped her off at committee meetings. I would hang around and offer to take her home, acting with as much nonchalance as I could muster up. Step number 11, <clears throat> arranging secret meetings. We started arranging uh, to work evenings on the same nights, and then we would leave early and meet each other in a dark parking lot. Number 12, deceit and cover-ups. Once we were meeting secretly, I had to invent all kinds of stories about where I'd been to satisfy my wife. By now, I had built a towering wall of dishonesty between us. Number 13, kissing and embracing. It just felt so good to be hugged and loved by somebody who really cared about me. Number 14, petting and high indiscretion. It was like I was a teenager again, going too far, then repenting and promising to do better. Then just as quick, I was hungrily seeking more sin. And the last step, sexual intercourse. One night, we couldn't seem to stop ourselves. At least we didn't want to. So I completed my journey of unfaithfulness to my husband. I had sex with this man. Have you taken any of these steps of unfaithfulness? Perhaps you've never set out to go so far down this path, but now you're wondering how it is that you've gotten to the place that you're at. Adultery is a serious breach of faithfulness and commitment to your spouse and to God. It is so serious that Jesus gives the imagery of tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand to avoid adultery rather than fall prey to the wicked desires of your heart. He uses this gruesome picture to show the seriousness of the sin in our hearts and the drastic measures we need to take in order to avoid sexual immorality. This is why I will never be best friends with anyone who is a member of the opposite sex other than my wife. A title is reserved for her alone. This is why I uh, try as hard as I can not to, to end up alone with a woman or a female student uh, in a room or in a car together. This is why I let my wife see all the texts and emails and Facebook messages and things like that uh, that I send or get from uh, another female. I want my wife to know that I am committed to her. I want my kids to know that I am deeply in love with their mother and am fully committed to being her husband and their father for the rest of my life. Read Proverbs 5 through 7 this week and listen to a father warn his son about the dangers of adultery. 
Now, we would be deceiving ourselves if we did not see the propensity in our hearts to be unfaithful to the covenants that we've made with our spouse and with God. The good news is that though failure to keep this commandment is a serious sin and has serious consequences, that sin is not unforgivable. And reconciliation can happen. Yes, it will take a lot of work, a lot of humility, a lot of repentance, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of grace. But it's possible because of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this command perfectly, and then he died to pay for our unfulfillment of it. And as followers of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us be imitators of Christ and fulfill this command in our lives as we cling to God with our whole hearts and entrust ourselves to his faithful, committed love. Commandment number eight is you shall not steal. This commandment reveals that God's love is a generous love, and it reminds us that he gives to his children freely and selflessly. It calls his people to love and honor him as the giver of every good and perfect gift, and to reflect that by not taking from others that which does not belong to us. Stealing disregards God's generosity, and it makes us takers instead of receivers, and it keeps us from modeling God's generosity to others. Stealing comes in many forms, everything from literally taking someone else's possessions to cheating on your taxes to plagiarizing to helping yourself uh, to office supplies without permission to cheating uh, on your time card and so on and so forth. Okay? If giving is selfless, then stealing is selfish. And it's really a self-deception that says, I will get for myself rather than give of myself. And it believes that our greatest treasures are the temporary things in this life rather than the eternal things in the life to come. Jesus, no surprise here, addresses this self-deception of the heart in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. <clears throat> when we feel entitled to something that we don't have, we want to take it. Sometimes we do. Oftentimes we justify that as self-preservation. And Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Are you guilty of stealing? You may have never shoplifted or taken a physical possession, but have you ever stolen credit for work that wasn't yours, maybe in a, in a project for school? Or work? Have you ever kept your mouth shut when the clerk unknowingly gives you more change back than you're supposed to get? Have you ever justified acquiring something that wasn't yours because you felt entitled to it? We break commandment number eight when we feel deserving of something we don't have and we decide to take it for ourselves. The truth is that we can gain nothing greater for ourselves than that which can only be given to us by God and of which we are the most undeserving. 
God in his selfless love gave us his one and only son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and God the Father offers his free gift of salvation and forgiveness of our sins through Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. The good news is that though we often fail at this commandment, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly and then died to pay for our unfulfillment of it. And as followers of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us be imitators of Christ and fulfill this commandment in our lives as we cling to God with our whole hearts and entrust ourselves to his generous love. Commandment number nine is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment reveals that God's love is a truthful love, and it reminds us that he is without deceit or falsehood. It calls his people to love and honor him as the one true God by reflecting his truth in their dealings with their neighbors. Bearing false witness disregards the honesty of God, and it makes us liars, and it makes us resemble the father of lies rather than the father of truth. We lie in order to exalt ourselves. We tell the truth in order to exalt God. This idea of not bearing false witness against one's neighbor refers to the justice system that God is establishing in the nation of Israel. In order for them to be his people, they would need to be a people committed to the truth. And in their, if their justice system was corrupt, then their nation would be corrupt. And God brought them out of Egypt not to be a corrupt nation, but a holy nation, a set, set apart from the other corrupt nations of the world by truth. In the New Testament, Peter says that all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, are a people set apart. I love the way the Lexham English Bible puts it in 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of the darkness, out of darkness into his marvelous light. The ESV uses the word excellencies there instead of virtues, but they both convey this utmost moral integrity of God in his dealings with his people. And he's so pure in his truthfulness, and we're told in Proverbs 6 that he hates a lying tongue. As God's people, we are to model this Uh, his upright dealings with us through our upright dealings with one another. Paul captures the heart of how we are to do this in Ephesians 4 when he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. So, are you honest in both public and private? Do you speak falsely to or against your neighbor? Do you purposefully leave out something or only tell half the truth? Again, I love the way the Gospel Project Leader Guide words it here. It says, only through the power of the gospel can we be remade to love the truth more than we love ourselves? Because of Jesus Christ, who was falsely accused for our sake, we can be forgiven when we repent to tell the truth about ourselves and believe the gospel, tell the truth about Jesus. As a truth-telling people, the church now bears witness to Christ. 
And the good news is that though we often fail at this commandment, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly and then died to pay for our fulfillment of it. And as followers of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to be imitators of Christ and fulfill this commandment in our lives as we cling to God with our whole hearts and entrust ourselves to his truthful love. So far today, that we, we've seen that the fifth commandment reveals that we honor God by honoring our parents, and commandments six through nine reveal that we honor God by loving our neighbors, and in this final commandment, we're going to see that, that we honor God by cultivating a heart of contentment. Let's read this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that's not your neighbor's. Anybody coveting their neighbor's donkey? <laughs> this commandment reveals that God's love is a satisfying love. And it reminds us that every need that we want and want, every need and every want that we could ever have is met in him. It calls his people to depend on him completely to provide for them and delight themselves in him alone. Covetousness reveals a heart of discontentment that doubts God's ability to be our provider. The idea of coveting here is more than just wanting something really badly. What this commandment is referring to is an obsessive craving for something to the point of wanting that very thing for oneself. That obsession leads to actions like murder, like stealing, like adultery, and lying in order to get what is not ours. It's not necessarily bad to want a house like your neighbor's. But when you want your neighbor's actual house and he doesn't want to sell it to you, then covetousness is resorting to breaking the other commandments in order to get your neighbor's house. Coveting is self-worship, and so it breaks commandments number one and two. It misrepresents God in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions, and so uh, it breaks commandment number three. And it keeps us from resting in his provision for us, and so it breaks commandment number four. It's a condition of our heart that leads to disobedience to any and all of the commandments that God has given us. And this condition can only be cured by the gospel. Paul reveals the antidote to covetousness in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. It says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The antidote to covetousness is contentment, and the secret to contentment is Christ. Covetousness focuses on circumstances with disappointment. Contentment focuses on Christ with delight and satisfaction. Are you content in Christ? Do you see covetousness growing in your heart towards something or towards someone? Remember the words of commandment number 10 and the words of Paul and let Christ be the greatest desire of your heart. The good news is that though we often fail at this commandment, Jesus fulfilled it perfectly and died to pay for our unfulfillment of it. And as followers of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit to make us imitators of Christ and fulfill this commandment in our lives as we cling to God with our whole hearts and entrust ourselves to his satisfying love. 
God brought Israel out of Egypt because he loved them. And he committed himself to them in a covenantal relationship. And he called them to commit themselves to him in response to his love for them. He was not an unloving God that just gave them a list of don't do this. And yet even as he did this, he knew that, that they would be unfaithful to him. They would serve other gods. They would make idols for themselves. They would misuse his name. They would grow restless and doubtful of his provision. They would dishonor their heavenly father. They would murder his son. They would attempt to steal his glory for themselves. They would commit adultery against their first love. And they would falsely accuse the Messiah. And they would covet the kingdom of God for themselves and try to keep it from others. Knowing they would betray him and break every command, God still entered into the covenant with his people, not because they would be faithful to fulfill their part, but because he would be faithful to fulfill his part through his love for them. His holy, jealous, righteous, restful, fatherly, redeeming, faithful, generous, truthful, and satisfying love. God knew the people would fail. And he gave them the law so that they too could see that they have failed and are in need of a Savior who would fulfill it perfectly on their behalf and then die as payment for their unfulfillment of it. This law reveals the sinfulness in us too. There's no one righteous, not even one. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. We break one command and we've broken them all and stand guilty before God. We all have turned away from God's love and are in desperate need of a Savior, but Christ died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us back to God as we put our trust in him. God calls us to himself in love, and he shows himself faithful to us and to make us into a royal priesthood and a holy nation that through uh, the sacrifice of his son and the power of his spirit that we might declare the praises of God to the world and reflect his amazing love to one another. May we cling to him with our whole heart and entrust ourselves completely to his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us in love. Thank you for uh, knowing, even in knowing that we would be unfaithful, for showing yourself faithful. Because God, that is who you are. You can't be unfaithful. And Lord, we thank you for that and we praise you for that. And God, I pray that, um, that as we look at these commands, as we read your word Uh, and we see the things that we are supposed to do as people of God, that we would not see them as a list of do's and don'ts from a God who is far off, but a God who is very, very near to us in love. Who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us, to fulfill all of the commands perfectly, because we could not, and to trade his righteousness 
for our unrighteousness so that we could stand before you in the righteousness of Christ, believing in him, clinging ourselves to you and to your uh, great love and entrusting ourselves to Christ. And we can be forgiven and that we can be redeemed and we can be given the Holy Spirit to help us imitate what Christ has done in being obedient to God the Father and that we can live a life of obedience as your children in overwhelming love to you because of your overwhelming love to us. Father, would you be glorified in our lives? Would you convict our hearts and change us to be more like you? We love you and we thank you for what you've done for us and we give you the praise. And Lord, would, would you help our lives to be reflective of the change that you've made in us? We thank you in Jesus' name and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. I want to encourage you guys as you leave this morning uh, to find somebody and ask them how you can pray for them and then do it before you walk out the doors, okay? Have a great week. Thanks.